Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Justine Murison. And we're here to talk about her book, uh, Faith and Exposure, Privacy and Secularism in the 19th Century United States. I'm really excited to talk about today's uh, very timely topic. Uh, Dr. Murison, wonderful to have you on today. Thank you for having me, PJ. So a normal question to start out with, why this book? Why did you feel like this is what I want to write? And then why does it fit our times? Well, let me start with the first question. Um, my last book, my first book was on um, the sort of uh, cultural understanding of the nervous system in the 19th century. And it was very medical and literature and sort of thinking about how, how a sort of understanding of the sort of invisible but material aspects of how our bodies knit together and knit into the environment um, really transformed how people talked about community, how they talked about, how they created literature. Um, one of the things that I saw dogging a lot of the doctors um, and a lot of the conversations around the nervous system was accusations of atheism. Like you're destroying the soul or the concept of the soul mm. by making it actually material, something in the body, um, you know, electrical impulses going through your nerves. And so I was curious about how these accusations of atheism played out in, in a time when we start to think about the disestablishment of state churches and, you know, it's both the second great awakening, but it's also the sort of secularization of America. And that's where it started. And that's, that's, you can see the elements of that, uh, especially in the first chapter of the book that is on um, accusations of infidelity against Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson and the, the literature at the time really being obsessed with the sort of uh, con conspiracy thinking around um, deism and the Illuminati and after the French Revolution. Um, but what I realized very quickly was that the story wasn't actually about that. The story was about privacy and privatization. And as I did more research, I realized the disestablishment of state churches, which in the United States, we often pose that culturally as the, the sort of quintessential definition of us, the secular state is the separation of church and state, the idea that there's a, a, a wall, um, as Thomas Jefferson put it, separating church and state. Um, but what I was realizing was that um, not only were the fights really interesting around it, but the idea of where religion belonged transformed the whole culture. If, if religion belongs in the private sphere, what does that mean for privacy? Um, how does that imbue privacy with religious and moral functions? Um, the other direction for how this book took shape had a lot to do with the fights. You know, I grew up after Roe v. Wade. Right. And I, my whole life, right, um, has been a fight about abortion. And um, one of the things I did know is that, um, especially Griswold v. Connecticut, the 1965 case that established the right to privacy, 
um, or the, the sort of gave us the language of the penumbra um, that in the Bill of Rights that adds up to the right to privacy, um, that that language around privacy, reproduction, marriage, birth control, that's animating 20, late 20th and early 21st century United States was really disconnected with a lot of the um, literature or scholarship I was seeing on privacy in the 19th century, which, um, you know, especially a sort of more traditional or older version was always about being left alone or being in solitude, um, a sort of transcendental version of privacy, um, or, you know, the separate spheres um, theories around the private sphere, but these things weren't connecting together. Um, so language about privacy today and language about privacy then, I could see a long trajectory as I started to work more and more on the project. And I finished, I should say that I finished even the epilogue and through page proofs before the Dobbs decision happened um, that overturned oh. Wade. <laughs> but I could see it coming. I could see it coming. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, with the, 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 the court's uh, shadow docket ruling on, on Texas's SB8. I mean, we all could kind of see it coming. But, but I, I, I had on my mind those things. I also had on my mind the erosion of privacy in social media. So I think that the present concerns were reverberating for me backward into the 19th century. Uh, forgive me. What does penumbra mean? Oh, penumbra means shadow. Um, <laughs> it's like a, it's a, okay, awesome. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it has always been a con since, since Douglas wrote that majority opinion in Griswold, it's been a controversial claim because for, um, for people who were more on the sort of conservative legal side, especially originalists, maybe textualists, penumbra, and it's sort of like the bill of rights shadows forth a theory of, of privacy, but doesn't use the word privacy. Um, I think my book sort of answers why, which is that privacy is this emerging concept. It doesn't really take its like full sort of language and form. It takes the 19th century to do that, but it, it's not, I think he's right. It's in the Bill of Rights. It's implied in, a, you know, no quartering of soldiers or no, no self-incrimination, right? This is all about sort of a sense of uh, an inviolable private self, as um, Warren and Brandeis would put it later in the century. Uh, as you're talking here, um, you mentioned privacy is like a, a transcendental form of uh, transcendentalist form of loneliness. Um, what do you think about uh, would privacy as autonomy would be a good way to talk about the 20th century? Like it, like there is that. And so, okay, you're nodding your head. So it seems like I'm on the right track. What is what is that switch, and why is that switch important? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that um, the bigger the bigger story is the rise of liberalism, right? This idea, um, and I mean liberalism with a small L, this idea that we are liberal subjects that own ourselves, that enter into contracts, that make choices, the sort of rise of liberalism and individualism, that happens in the 19th century. I mean, it starts in the 18th, but really for US culture, it really takes hold in the 19th century. Um, and, and so you get that autonomous subject out of an idea of liberalism. But one of the things that my book really pays attention to is how, um, how that movement 
changed marriage. And the sort of quintessential metaphor of the private sphere is the married couple, especially the heterosexual married couple. And I think that, um, you know, like the privatization of religion and the privatization of marriage are happening concurrently. And the privatization of marriage is all about changing marriage from a public function to a private contract. So it is about not just the individual oneself alone in the world, but about the the contractual relations that are replacing sort of more publicly oriented community-based theories of what, say, a marriage does or where a family is demarcated and where a family is not demarcated. Um, I would say that the, the there's I mean, I I think privacy is important. <laughs> um, maybe it makes me a liberal subject um, uh, uh, <laughs> liberalism. But but I think that it's not just uh, autonomy. It's uh, it's a shielding of your life from corporate or government intrusion, right, or surveillance. I think right now the fact that we have all sort of given the keys away to like like what we're doing quietly in our house, I'm more concerned about the corporations having it, but that sense of what, um, uh, you know, Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism, right? This idea of making money off of watching us and keeping track of what we're doing. Um, But I would say that um, my other concern about it, and the, the, the argument I make in the book is that the opposite of privacy is not publicness so much as secrecy. And I think that, you know, when we talk about the right to privacy, I think for some people, it means the right to keep secrets from prying eyes, but I also think that um, privacy, because it has this public function, that it's emblematized by a marriage, um, that uh, one of the one of the things that I think a lot of our pitched battles around what I think is uh, not not called correctly, but cultural <laughs> issues, um, is about people having the right to privacy in the terms of not having to have their lives be secret. So if you think about that um, in terms of, say, gay marriage, right, that sense that you can have an official private life. I know that sounds uh, contradictory, but that you don't have to keep it secret, right? Or the same, the same thing with, say, abortion, right? That you, that you have the right to have one that doesn't have to be a secret sin. It's counterintuitive to think about privacy and secrecy that way, as opposed to those being in the same category, opposed to publicness. But I really do think that privacy assumes a level of openness and transparency, um, at least in how a liberal society has built it. Uh, Immediately, I think of this metaphor, and uh, I just want to make sure we're on the same track. Maybe this is helpful. Um, For me, I immediately think of the difference between camouflage and uh, offense, mm. right? Like you yeah. have the difference between hiddenness yeah. and a boundary, yeah. right? Uh, so, and we actually do feel this with like, um, it's not legally held, but uh, we feel that it's wrong for someone to, like a guy's, uh, I read about a case where a guy was watching birds and he was looking over someone's fence with binoculars, <laughs> right? right? But it's not that you can't look, o- like that's a little creepy. Yeah. Like not a little creepy. It's very creepy. Excuse me. Very creepy. I'm not like, yeah, I mean, it's not too bad. No, uh, it's very creepy, but 
you can look over someone's fence and it's not a big deal. Like you're just walking by, like no one's gonna be like, how dare you look right. over my fence? But what's going on over in their fence, unless it's a, like, you know, obviously if you see someone dragging like a murdered body, like that's a, that's a different thing, right? But for the most part, you're looking over in someone's fence. You're like, that's theirs. That is, you know, if, if for instance, you have a high fence and you look over and someone is sunbathing in the nude and you're like, oh, and you're like, well, you shouldn't have looked over the fence. Like that was on you, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's their private property, right? And so that's, that's privacy as a boundary versus like, oh, I have to keep it, you know, I mean, you, you're teaching on, uh, you, you told me earlier, uh, the Scarlet Letter, you know, like uh, tomorrow. And it's like, oh, I have to, I have to camouflage my sin, right? You have uh, the, the sin in secret versus, I actually had this written down to, to talk about versus the privacy in public, yeah. right? It's like, well, this is mine and you, you can't come in here because this is something I need to take care of. Yeah. Like, and that you really shouldn't. And I, I there's some, and you know, I don't know how far you want to go into, but like, there's a lot about like metaphysical claims and like people getting to decide metaphysical claims. Like, Really, you can't avoid metaphysical claims when you talk about what the good life is. Right. Right. And so allowing people to, I mean, this is where it, it cuts into, not cuts into, this is where it dovetails with religion, right? Um, religion makes a lot of claims of what the good life is. There's a lot of other ways to make mm -hmm. claims about the good life, but uh, it, it's, that's what a lot of this is about is allowing other, like allowing people to discover their own good life. And that's the whole idea of the pursuit of happiness, um, ostensibly, right? Like, I mean, there's some, it's, it gets, <laughs> I realize it gets complicated, yeah, yeah. but are, am I, am I in the right? Like, is that, is that a way to talk about it? I think so. I think it's, um, one of the, one of the jokes I always make at the beginning of talking about this is that I decided to write about two abstractions, privacy and secularism. So I always have to make it Good. more material. Um, <laughs> I, right, right. I think that, um, because privacy, I think, has the positive qualities of allowing you to, um, shield yourself. I'm allowing you to uh, to sort of develop a sense of um, I don't know if I want to say autonomy, but selfhood that doesn't necessarily always have to report. Um, I think that one of the weird things that I in our culture is that our sense of privacy always has to report, and I think that that's where my hope for privacy and what we actually do. I think, and that's where I think. The term that's most important to the study, um, other than the term in the title, is authenticity. This idea that your private self has to be, is deeply who you are and who you're showing the world. Very romantic notion that you're showing the world your real self, but I don't think it's gone away. I think actually this is one of the, the sort of like vestiges of romanticism that never got sort of pushed aside, this idea that like who I am needs to sort of be apparent and that I'm doing anything from a faux pas to, to a major sin in not being true to who I am in my deep down self-privacy, right? And maybe it's because Freud came along and kind of doubled down on this sort of idea of this deep self, but that sense that um, who you are is a private person and then you go out into the public, that's, that's the romantic story. And that like the goal is to be as much yourself as possible. And as I say in the book, like 
we we learn that through our cultural modes. And so I'm a literary scholar, you know, like we're talking history, we're talking theory. Um, but I, I very much believe that how we think about ourselves isn't something we discover within. It's it's the stories that are circulated. It's the, the way in which um, you consume media and what you're consuming. Um, and for the 19th century, that's novels. They're hitting their like moment culturally. I mean, people are reading poetry. People love poetry too. I'm not trying to make novels the exclusive thing people are dieting on, but it is it is the way in which people shape the stories they tell about themselves is through these novels that are constantly posing revelations about characters. And then the long arc is who's the villain or who's, who's, what, who's the bad person. I, villain is often too strong a word. It's very melodramatic, but like, how do we know Jaffrey Pynchon's the bad, the big bad in House of Seven Gables is, you know, it's right there on, you know, how Hawthorne's describing him. Um, but that you start to read other people that way, but you also start to read yourself that way. Um, so I, I really do think that um, understanding that sort of history of the novel as emerging alongside liberalism and modernity is thinking about the novel's um, form as well as um, just um, fun stories people like to read. And that gives us a clue into the culture but it really gives us a clue into how people perceive themselves and how they like interacted with each other. And then how they, they sort of rewrote law based on sort of how we think about our true selves. In a lot of ways, social media kind of does that now, right? I mean, how many times have I caught myself, you know, before Twitter sort of came apart? Another thing I couldn't have possibly <laughs> expected when I wrote that epilogue. Um, but that sense that I would walk around and think, oh, I should write that as a tweet. Like it, it shaped how I thought about like myself interacting with the world, like Facebook posts, like how, how might I put that on Facebook? How might I present myself to the world? Yeah. What kind of TikTok do I want to make? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, for sure. <laughs> um, I, I want to return because this is really fascinating to me and I always know there's a reason for it. You wanted to, um, you wanted to say something about selfhood versus autonomy why that distinction oh no i i think i think i would say they're both selfhood i was saying authenticity not versus autonomy i would say probably authenticity as a, an expression of autonomy or a way of okay. um, imagining the autonomous self that is also constantly presenting itself to the world um I'm not quite making that quite clear because I think I'm thinking of autonomy in that in that liberal tradition, um, the the selfhood that owns itself. Um, when I think about authenticity, I'm thinking more in line with like a romantic notion of a true self. Um, this this thing that you want to be true to, and that the and thinking about say like Emerson's self reliance, right? Um, the voice you hear in solitude, that's your true self. And then the, the, the culture is trying to shape you into something else. Um, that idea that there is even an originary moment where there's a true self. And then you go into culture and you hear these things. Um, you know, that would be my argument with Emerson. But that sense that like that idea, that idea that there's this authentic, autonomous self inside you. Um, that's a romantic notion, you know, and made extremely popular by somebody like Emerson. Um, for our culture, especially for our 21st century culture, as Emerson became 
I don't think he holds this place anymore, but he did for a long time in the 20th century United States, this like quintessential American voice. Uh, so uh, this is, again, just like making sure that I'm on track with you. Um, when you talk about autonomy, we're talking about that fence. We're talking about that boundary. And it's about being able to, and it's an important part of being authentic that you can establish yourself, right? Um, that you can own yourself. Uh, I mean, this is, goes back to even the Lockean idea of like the first rule of property is I own myself, right? Um, but authentic is different because you can still be false to yourself even within that boundary. Exactly. <laughs> so the authentic authenticity is different because uh, it also demands of you that you are honest with yourself uh, in order to like fulfill that boundary properly. Is that is that a fair way to distinguish? It is, and the only way you can prove that you're being true to yourself is if you're performing it publicly. Like it, it can't just mm. be alone. You know, like uh, uh, this is why the compulsion on social media to constantly perform oneself is about that sense of like wanting to show your opinion, your your authentic self. Um, I can be in my house and be my authentic self, but that doesn't really do the work of proving it's authentic. Um, I would say also, uh, you know, this is all complicated by the fact that as, as two of the chapters deal with, this is, I'm working in the era of slavery. So owning yourself is an incredibly big deal, big deal and, and a privileged position as it is now. But that sense that, um, you know, this is where the paradoxes start coming into what I, as I discovered, and this is where we get really abstract, right? This idea that privacy is always being, has this publicness to it, that it has this in the U.S., culturally, historically, has something to prove. When you talk about, um, so, and I'm just curious, when you talk about social media and this constant proving your authentic self, uh, do you see that continuous proving as a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, that's a great point. I think, I mean, and now I'm just I'm going way off track with my book, but I would say that I think it's a bad thing. <laughs> okay, okay. But you, but in order to be authentic, you do have to prove it publicly. Yeah. But so. Well, I think that, makes, I think that so, it's, it's um I think I don't act. I mean, like I think if we're going down to brass tacks, I'm I'm probably a dyed in the wool Foucauldian. I don't think that we have authentic selves. <laughs> think the authenticity is a performance precisely because it's what the culture is demanding of us. Um, I would say, I mean, part of my reason with like social media being such a treacherous place is the every time you're responding, you're like, I'm emotionally angry. I'm, I'm outraged. I'm going to click on this. I'm going to respond. I'm going to retweet. You're feeding the thing that's actually selling your data to corporations. So, I mean, for me, it's like a capitalist critique. But gotcha. I would say also that the drive to do that always opens one up to all of, again, the swirl of accusations around if you're being authentic, or are you just being a hypocrite? Is it, it these things go together? And I think it, it creates a, a very toxic environment. Um, and I think that's where maybe I'm the, I, I, you might have found my most romantic, if also my most anti-capitalist sort of strain where I actually give my students um, what I call the transcendentalist challenge in the, the survey class, American Lit to 1865, where it's an extra credit assignment, but they have to unplug and then write about it. 
they, you know, we used to say 24 hours, but that seemed way too long these days. And I always tell them they better tell all of their like family that they're not going to respond to texts, you know, for like three hours, say. Um, but but I, I want them to sort of do what Emerson or Thoreau is talking about, which is having the original relationship to the universe. And I mean that not in that highfalutin way, but just in a, do you ever, like, do you walk across campus and are you always piping music into your ears? Are you able to have dinner without taking a picture of your dinner, you know, to post somewhere? Like that sense that is your is your sort of the space between your ears and your and your whole like sort of private life meals friends going out even having a drink like are all of these things caught up with showing other people that you're doing it um or mediating the experience instead of actually just sitting you know and and I think that's hard right we're a very impatient culture at this point but that's the that's the challenge part but it's also um I think they also this generation really kind of loves it. I think they're they're sort of really interested in alternative ways of um, thinking about technology, um, social relations. They're scared, they're anxious, but they're also sort of more open, you know, about it. So it's been kind of interesting. I'll let you I'll let you know how that goes. Um, this is the first time <laughs> I'm doing the transcendental challenge. <laughs> it was easy during COVID. They were like, "Yeah, got it. Solitude." <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, uh, forgive me, I, I didn't catch it. You said you're a dyed in the wool what? Foucauldian, Michelle Foucault. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tracking. Yeah. <laughs> I I really do think that like who we are is is sort of like built, you know, through these sort of like regulatory, disciplinary, biopolitical regimes. I I. I I'd like to think that, you know, there's there's also a core, but, you know, there's a sense in which it's hard to access. I mean, that's Freud's point too, right? We are strangers to ourselves. This thing that might be sort of deep down is not going to be like necessarily revealed easily. It's going to bubble up in weird ways. Um, but I just think that we're more we're more weird and we're more structured by our environment than I think like liberal philosophy would admit. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're talking to, yeah, uh, like uh, my background's um, uh, philosophical hermeneutics. So there's a strong bent towards phenomenology and uh, psychology. And so, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, very, very familiar. And also, yeah, the, this idea that we are these kind of just uh, blocks to ourselves that we are like when we say autonomous, the boundaries are strong. I, I don't. Anyways, yeah. That's a whole other discussion. Bodily, uh, like even like even our bodies don't have that kind of strong boundary, you know, let alone ourselves. Right. <laughs> I think that like uh, this is also where I always pull things, you know, back to the material, but I also talk it in terms of stories and and literature because if I if I am being sort of constructed outside of myself to think I have this authentic self, what am I consuming that creates that feeling? You know, how am I learning it? You know, and I think that, you know, different people come at that question differently, but I am always thinking about what's popular in, in reading, what what it, what books are are people consuming? You know, what television shows are they watching? You know, that kind of thing. And you can really track how culture changes through that. 
and then how people think about culture changes too. Well, when you look at, so for me, I started out with a love of literature. Like I read like a crazy man when I was a kid. And the reason I went into philosophy was not like, there's a reason it's a big questions podcast and not a, a philosophy podcast. And that like philosophy for me was a way of talking about, um, it was very clear uh, that when we read fiction, we are learning something and we are growing as people. And a lot of the philosophy I encountered, um, this is why I ended up in hermeneutics, but uh, a lot of the philosophy I did encounter was not able to account for that. It's, you know, it's just like, well, and it's like, this is very attractive to people. And just uh, saying it that it's pure entertainment is reductive in a way that does not match the evidence. And so, uh, yeah, that point that you just made is really resonates with me. And it's very much part of uh, my own journey and my own ongoing journey, like any, any projects that I'm, I'm moving towards. So I, I appreciate that. Um, what, something I, I wanted to say about the social media side of things, make sure that, I'm, again, I'm tracking with you, is uh, it, it seems that one of the problems with the, con the continuous, right? Like the, there are, the, it's important to have public moments of proving the authentic self, right? Um, but this continuous proving is that there's a, there becomes this real temptation to, uh, that there's a continuous exposure to the temptation for hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. That's a big one. It's like, oh, I need to make sure I'm matching the moment rather than matching me. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of that is you're also not able to check in with yourself because you are so constantly focused on, you, you, you have to create a, a, a cohesive identity without checking in with your, your true self, if that makes sense. Or, so or like, like there is yeah, no, there's a fantasy of a cohesive identity. You know, there's this idea that like, like I can keep track of the whole thing. And this is, you know, that I can actually, I can't have conflicting or contradictory. I have to make the statement, you know, like I, I, I can't yeah. just like see, wow, that, that situation is extremely tenuous and ongoing. And I'm not going to like come out with my immediate take. Takes are like the opposite, <laughs> you know, that, that sense of, um, and I think that's, that's one of the things that um, I make a joke in the introduction about how um, hypocrisy is like the sin in, in the liberal order, right? And I, I draw from Arendt and Schlar on that, but like that sense that um, finding out someone's hypocrisy somehow feels like exposing sin in our culture, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I use that loaded term. I just mean that, you know, it, the secularization of it is that like you're exposing someone's sin for being contradictory to themselves. Um, and my students, they used to, they don't do this as much anymore, but um, would often tell me that Thoreau's mother did his laundry, which somehow negates everything he wrote. <laughs> 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 And I always, I always come back with, um, you know, like a, a modified version of something that Herman Melville says at the beginning of Moby Dick, you know, he does this sort of locution a few times in the novel, but it's like, who ain't a hypocrite, right? Like there's yeah. a sense in which there's this idea that we can escape hypocrisy. Yeah. Uh, well, and uh, that's where maybe saying true self, and this is, so I'm glad I said that, yeah. like uh, I'm, I'm saying this because it's not true self, but it's it's allowing yourself time to breathe and reflect so you can like even recognize within yourself when you have contradictions instead of just being like, I need like flattening yourself to, to be cohesive. And that's like, so that's a better way of putting it. That's, that's really helpful. Thank you.
I really like that idea that like what what social media demands is a flattening of the self um, for cohesiveness or for coherence, like that idea that um, um, what personal branding. Sorry. Brand, well, branding is a great example. <laughs> exactly. Branding is a perfect example of what what I'm talking about, this idea that like you can come up with a package that's that's clear and coherent and shallow. Right. Um, easily understood. And easily yes. understood. I'm very bad at that. So I, I have like <laughs> watched and studied and been like, how did you do that? <laughs> it's like, why don't I talk about all these complexities so that like I make it a paradox upon a paradox upon a paradox? Because <laughs> I can't like let those those complexities go. But yeah, branding is a perfect example. Um, this, yeah, this, my yeah, day the, job yeah. is digital marketing. Yeah, what? Oh, your day job is mar is marketing. So you, uh, yeah. Know. So this is that's your goal. Oh man, I cannot tell you. As someone who does like philosophy, I'm like, you know, this will work, but it hurts my soul that I'm telling you <laughs> right. this. And they're like, oh, that's great. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm just like, <laughs> anyway, sorry. I just want to say, like, when you talk about like. Who ain't a hypocrite? <sighs> yeah, okay. Yes, no, exactly. No, a hundred percent that I literally, yeah. I, you know what? That's a whole rabbit hole. We yeah, don't yeah. need to go down my frustration with that. But um, yeah, I, I feel that very strongly. I, I'm sorry, I cut you off. But I, oh, no, I just, no, but that, that's that, that was so definitely sorry, a spoke from the say, heart. Like, I don't, I'm very bad at that. That's also why I, I don't um, tweet a lot too, because like there is a genre to, like, I feel like, you know, I'm just going to say Twitter. Um, <laughs> but like, but that sense of, um, when people are clever and funny on Twitter, it's amazing because it's a it's a it's a very um, it's a genre with brevity, so it lends itself to humor. Um, but it is also a a genre that lends itself to outrage and takes. You know, it's all of those things at the same time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I um I actually built uh, an account um uh on twitter back uh, a couple years ago and uh i went from i went to six thousand followers in three months oh wow and um and most of it actually was asking questions that people responded to which is mm -hmm. uh and then made because people go on I, what i figured out was people go on twitter to give their opinions and so yes. if you ask good questions people <laughs> people will respond and it'll drive you up in the algorithm Absolutely. which is yeah horrific um because <laughs> the uh, the opinions were terrible most <laughs> of the time I, <laughs> what were the but, types uh, of questions I, you asked i i was trying to create a writer account uh i was looking uh, i've been working on uh fiction and so i was like you know if you're going to be a writer you have to have marketing and so i started working on that and i was uh i spent so much patience on twitter that I was impatient with my family. And uh, so I did that for three months and I did not like who I was at home. Yeah. And I was like, I, so I deleted it, <laughs> which to this day, I'm like, uh, I guess it was worth it. You know, like this is where it draws, this is the capitalistic side of it, right? right. You're like, but you had 6,000 followers, you got to keep it. And I'm like, it's not worth my family. And it's like that, that, that's a hard thing to say, right? It's like, it, it it's, um, but that's you know, funny, uh, my like wife. the paradoxes of privacy, right? There's Twitter is obviously yeah. a public sphere, it's a type of public sphere. Although I, I always joked, my my main approach to Twitter was Twitter is not the public sphere because it actually is not a rational space <laughs> for debate. <laughs> so don't expect <laughs> it. But but it is it is a sense of you performing your authentic opinions and takes and outrages and emotions on Twitter, but that was actually affecting your private life. 
Right. And so that's what I meant by like privacy isn't this one thing, right? There's these like shades of like who I am privately trying to say it publicly. There's the the marriage and and family and and the private sphere. And then there's also um, that sense of selfhood, like what's happening in my head. Um, you know, and and I talk about that a little in the introduction because one of the the complications of even just talking about the private is that uh, economists will talk about it as like the marketplace, and uh, feminist scholars will be like, okay, everything but the you know like governance marketplace over there, the private sphere is like you know the home and women's domestic realm in the nineteenth century, the separate spheres ideology. So like like we don't even have agreed upon definitions depending on which aspects of privacy we're talking about um, as scholars yeah. and, and like talking across disciplines about privacy is really hard actually for that reason. So this is something I wanted to ask you about. And I'm glad you said that because it reminded me um, you talked about how marriage transformed from a public function to a private contract. And I think in our culture, there's an immediate like, well, I know what I gained from that. Here's a, like, this question I'm interested in. What did we lose by uh, transforming marriage from a public function to a private contract? That's a great question. And I don't know if I have a good, clear answer. I mean, I'm, I'm really drawing on historian Nancy Cott there, who's brilliant. Um, you know, her book on marriage um, is, is really helpful um, in thinking through this. I think... One of the things that she says, so I'll ventriloquize her for a second, but like one of the things she says is that um, as marriage made this cultural and legal transition, the sense of what made a good wife or a good husband started to harden a bit, um, started to be um, the boundaries stopped being as loose. Um, I would say that by the end of the 19th century, and here I'm just speaking culturally, as divorce became more and more, relatively more available, I just <laughs> relatively more available. Um, Understood. Yeah. Um, but as it became an option, um, you know, there's on the one hand, I think that's that's what the free love movement is arguing for. Right. Um, the ability to enter and exit relationships. As they go, it, it's not what we think it is. That that was what they were going for. Um, but that sense that um, what is lost, I guess one of the things that uh, gets talked about a lot in the late 19th century um, in that hardening is uh, and it is like a contrast, say, with France. Um, this comes up so much. I, we joke about it in some of my classes. But um, authors like Carrie Beecher Stowe late in her career, and that's who I'm working on right now, so I'm thinking about her. Um, but uh, we'll always point to French marriages as the example of like what we don't do and what is the worst way to organize marriage, which is that like you have like women will have no freedom supposedly until they get married and then anyone can have an affair. You know, it's about that public facing marriage, but it doesn't matter what happens behind the scenes. Now, I'm not saying that's what French marriages were like. I'm saying that's what um, that's how that was the caricature, that's, that's yeah. the American caricature of French marriages. Um, and that that sense that like a marriage as a public facing union where you can have separate lives, where you can be a woman who deviates from expected uh, roles is less possible in the United States. Now, I would also say that this is very much a middle class 
version, a very like middling version, middle class version of marriage taking over the whole culture. Um, so if you look at, say, 18th century, uh, sort of like lower class, mar like marriages, weddings, that kind of thing, not weddings so much. That's really I think of that as a very 20th century phenomenon. But um, but that sense that uh, uh, that that like looseness around when you can have sex before marriage, stuff like that, that starts to harden as marriage becomes more contractual, as it gets caught up in both this liberal version of what marriage is, but also the way in which uh, a sort of bourgeois middle-class version of morality becomes pervasive. It just becomes part of our secular culture. Um, it shapes it. I mean, that's that's sort of the, I'm just borrowing that argument from Tracy Fessenden and John Mardern, but that idea that um, the secular is really shaped by Protestantism in America. Oh, did you say John Mardern? Yes. Oh, I've had him on. I know, I listened to it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, I was like, I know that yeah. name. Um, no, I really enjoyed having him on. Uh, I, you know, I, I want to be um, respectful of your time. Uh, so one of the things I want to make sure we cover, because it's kind of the main thing, uh, the way you frame it at the end of your introduction is privacy's sacredness. But I, want, I don't want to leave today without talking about the role that religion plays in kind of creating privacy yeah. and the way that, that uh, the, these kind of religious origins or that sacred nature of privacy uh, folds into domestic and uh, life and personal life, like, uh, like truly like uh, that selfhood idea. Yeah, that's, that's um, both what, where I ended up and, I, and it was a backwards walking, right? Watching this unwinding of any sort of set, like the, the, the sort of claim for religious freedom and the claim for reproductive or, or um, you know, marital freedoms being pitted against each other. But that sense that um, one of the effects of lodging privacy, um, sorry, religion in the private sphere had to change how we thought about what the private sphere's function was. Um, and I think that a lot of, I had really kept trying to find other scholars who were sort of pinning down, like it's, it's a narrative we tell all the time. The secularization was the movement of the religion from the public to the private sphere. And then there's a claim that women were in charge of morality and, and, and sort of it got feminized. Um, but there's a way in which that doesn't necessarily explain how it is that privacy ended up having a moral function, right? I mean, and that's what I was most interested in, that sense that privacy um, and, our, and our private selves could not, could not um, we're learning more scripts for moral sociability, moral sensibilities, um, such that you could describe, I mean, it's a very, when you start to think about it, it's very weird to describe the private sphere or privacy, the right to privacy as Louis as um, uh, Warren and Brandeis do, as sacred, you know, but that sense that um, that imbuing of it with a religiosity um, is part of that sort of movement of Protestantism into a sort of secular language. Um, and I don't think they mean, they don't mean it like religiously at all. They mean it in a very secular way. Um, but it still keeps with it a sense that um, it should not be touched. It should not be um, messed with. Now, of course, the trick with them is that they only mean a few people get this privacy. But <laughs> as as the the chapter talks about, but that sense that um, 
privacy demands a certain type of moral orientation, just like your self does. And the self is the private self. It starts to concatenate. I feel like I'm getting too abstract and I definitely feel like I always want to go to a literary example when I do that because it, it becomes too abstract. But I, I think the, the real insight of scholars of secularism is, is to really see that religion doesn't disappear, right, in the secular world. Um, the secular and the religious are defined with and against each other, but that ways in which the dominant culture does religion is how both the religious and the secular get defined. So that's why it's different in different places. So, uh, I mean, and I think this goes back to our earlier discussion about um, deism. Uh, of course, Locke uh, claimed to be Christian, but that's probably like, debatable, but some people say that's probably because he didn't want to get uh, brought up on heresy charges, right? So we, we see some kind of like, yeah. uh, really, like we're talking about um, the way that deism works out, you know, in Locke or, well, you know, however you want to look like this, this idea, uh, there's definite metaphysical claims in this right to property. Uh, and there's like, when you talk about the sacredness, what you're talking about, uh, even this moral orientation is that there is something deep rooted uh, like even sacred, all these things is that there's something uh, abstract, but uh, fully and firmly rooted in uh, in this privacy, right? And so it it, it is uh, it starts out. I mean, this is grounded in what? How does Locke make this claim? He makes this claim um, talking about uh, we are all made by God, and so if we're all made by God, we're all on the same playing field. And so that's like, that is a metaphysical claim yeah. that leads to his view on property, which leads to privacy, which leads to, and you could see like how it, you know, which very grateful for some of the things that happened from it, but what are the longstanding ramifications that have happened from it, right? Like uh, there's, there's always like these good and bad things. You don't see how the ramifications, I don't think he was sitting here and like, He's like, you know, this this idea of privacy is going to interact very strangely with social media, right? Like, that's not fair to put that on lock, right? No, no, no. How can you possibly know social media this way? I think, though, that, like, I mean, that that's part of it is, like, why would anyone in in an era, you know, in a country that ha does not have an official state church, why would anyone care what anybody else does in their private lives? Right. And that's because privacy is not private in the U.S. Right. <laughs> Why would I care if you were married to somebody else that I, you know, like that, that sense of or if you needed to get an abortion or like you use birth control, like why would I care is is because privacy has a longstanding moral function. Um, and that mm. gets back to those 70s, 1790s, 1790s deists. I think that like one of the things that drive, can I say what drives me nuts? In, in some of our oh go for it yeah um, as someone who like has studied the 1780s and 1790s and has this chapter on on deism and fears around infidelity and atheism and sort of the conspiracy thinking especially after the French Revolution as I said earlier I think that um, that use of a language of a sort of just a really very vague gestural Christianity that you see in, say, founding documents, like use of the word creator, right, is being willfully misinterpreted in, in our public culture to mean this sort of deep, 
like Christianity to figures who like were at bestiests, right? <laughs> um, right? And I think, you know, and that's why I think The Age of Reason by Payne is so fascinating precisely because he writes it in this attempt to stop the French from going like full atheist. <laughs> He's like, no, 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 there's like reasons. But then it ends up just being, you know, he's like, you should you should believe in natural religion, that sense of, um, you know, a deist idea that miracles aren't happening now, but we can still kind of believe the Bible, you know, like that kind of thing. Or, you know, like you just take out all the miraculous stuff and you're still left with a moral code. And Jefferson, I mean, very famously cut out all the parts of the Bible he didn't like. And then like he had like the Bible he did, which had no miracles and no revelations, you know, like that kind of thing. And I think that like that sense and that that thick fabric of these religious fights and these fights over um, where religion should be located and why um, so easily forgotten in our public culture. Yeah. So I don't know if I mentioned it with, uh, you know, John Modern. It sounds like the kind of thing come up, but I grew up independent fundamental Baptist. Oh, wow, yeah. So, yes. So when you talk... <laughs> Like, I mean, we had the founding fathers and I remember they were like, you need to read these people. I'm like, oh, okay. And also, you know, all these, like, like the, our country is thoroughly Christian. And then I, I actually was going to bring up, I was like, then you get to the Jefferson Bible and you're like, I don't think you guys would like this guy. I don't think you've been checking up on your sources here. Like, <laughs> and that, that's just a real part of it. It yeah. is. And then what's another group that really hated Jefferson, um, other than David Walker and, and sort of um, the black critics of Notes on the State of Virginia, that, that at least in my field is more famous than pro-slavery Southerners and pro-slavery writers in the 1850s hated Jefferson too. I mean, they just were like, Jefferson's not our man. Right. Because of the all, all, you know, all people are created free and equal sort of sentiment in the declaration. They're just like, he's he's your guy. <laughs> we don't believe in that. Right. Um, I think I think that's it, it reminds me what you said reminds me of the, the passage in Franklin's autobiography where he talks about um, reading uh, anti-deist writing and then reading like like reading like because the anti-deist writing would quote. Deists, and he'd be like, "Well, I think the deists are right." You know, like he was reading the thing that was supposed to convince him not to to be a deist, and and of course, he also famously hid his deism for a long time, right? Just to because, like, you know, people had that reaction, right? Oh, are you even yeah. Christian? Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the threat of unbelief it waxes and wanes in our culture, but it, it's certainly waxing right now. But like that sense that like that's beyond the pale. Like we can all agree that you should believe in it in in religion is is central to how we interact in our culture, um, and I mean largely. And I'm making very broad generalizations, obviously. But yeah, I mean, I I came to sort of looking at the history of religion because I was I was actually raised like Catholic. My mother is a liberal Catholic, and and you just have a different way of inhabiting religion, even if even if you're studying, it's very, there's intellectual traditions to Catholicism, but a lot of it when you're growing up is like sacraments and, you know, doing things with a group or embodied types of religious stuff. So it was, and, and, and like, if I were to say growing up, who was like the figure that was like, religiously most important for me, it would be like Mary, which of course is like, not allowed <laughs> in Protestantism. 
Um, so it was interesting to start like realizing that in college, you know, sort of seeing seeing how the sort of Protestantism shaped how we talk even about secular things. Like what do you like what does where does belief happen and why? And um what kind of moral codes do you follow and why? And who gets to count as having a religion and who gets not to have free exercise of their religion? Um, yeah, no, that's 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 sort of like the deep history, right, <laughs> of growing up New Jersey, <laughs> New Jersey Catholic school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um, so uh, we're drawing to a close here. So one, I wanted to say thank you. It's been a real um, joy having you on today. Uh, if you could leave our audience with one thing to think about and kind of chew on throughout the week, what would it be? I think it would be about. Hmm, that's a great question. I'll go. I'll go sort of towards today and big, big questions rather than um, read some more books from the 19th century. They're great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, let me say besides reading your book, which everyone no, should. No, no, not my book. Uh, no, what? Read the Scarlet Letter again. You'll love it as an adult. <laughs> I, I got to plug your book though. I got to plug. That's only fair. Yeah. I got to plug your book. Besides reading your excellent book, what should everyone do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. I think to think about the the compulsion and inefficacy of accusations around hypocrisy. We touched on that a little bit about like the sort of sense in which like hypocrisy is the one thing, the sort of the way in which we do privacy doesn't, doesn't want to allow for. My thought is, is partially like this impulse to say that person's such a hypocrite as if that does moral work. Um, And to think maybe about why we find disjunctions between public and private selves or contradictions so unable to account for, even when they are always on display and even part of our own, you know, sense of life, right? So I would say, you know, especially in our, in our social media world and, and of course, a, an extremely um, polarized uh, nation dealing with, you know, sort of like the, the sort of questions of politics that we deal with today, what, what does the desire to expose hypocrites do and where is why is it not working as well as we kind of think it does and i think part of that has to do is you have to believe that you know you need a a, a full authentic in um coherent self but i would say that just thinking about hypocrisy more that would be my my thing in, in another way, because you immediately, uh, I, I love bringing it back to literature here at the end. Yeah, well, thank you. Know, you. <laughs> as thinking of, uh, think of Walt Whitman, right? Like, do I, we need more people who are brave enough to say, do I contradict myself very well then? I contradict yes. myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. Yeah. And just being like, yeah, that's me. I'm a hypocrite. Ain't we all hypocrites, right? Yes, absolutely. I think Whitman's a great way to end one of my favorite poets of all time. <laughs> But that sense that like uh, that flattening that you talked about, that sort of like creating of the coherence, but the flattening of the self um, that is part of branding. It's part of capitalism. It's part of um, it's part of expectations that I think are impossible and therefore um, something for us to, to think hard about why we, we care so much. Yeah. Or why we think it's effective uh. even. Uh, well said. I, what a great way to summarize today. Uh, Dr. Murison, it's been an honor having you on today. Thank you so much, PJ. It was such a wonderful conversation. 